the welcome time, I, 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 get, I get prayer requests, I get updates, I get all kinds of information. And someone asked me here this morning, where are um, Simeon and Jude in Depali? An Indian couple that's been visiting with us for several months. They have a um, two-month-old named Jude who has been in the NICU ever since he has been born. And we got a uh, text message this morning that he is coming home from the hospital today. And so... That actually ties in kind of well to the sermon because when you encounter difficulty, how you react to that difficulty really is the proof and the pudding of what you believe. It's easy to follow Jesus when everything is easy. It is really something altogether different to follow Jesus when things are hard. And when we talk about discipleship, there's a lot of confusion. I think in America we know what evangelism is perhaps better than discipleship. There have been some longitudinal research studies to examine the effects of crusade evangelism upon America. Now, by some some statistics, 80% of our country are born-again believers. Do you believe that? you believe that 80% of our country, when asked by a researcher, says, yes, I am indeed a Christian? Yes. You see, we have made the gospel call so easy, it's like checking a box on a sheet of paper. And it doesn't have anything to do with actually following Jesus. The statistics are that uh, about 85 to 92% of people that make a commitment at a crusade have no discernible walk with the Lord one year later. And so the question is, what makes those uh, 10 to 15% that stick really distinctive? And it's this. It's that they had a friend that invited them. They have a friend who, after they make a commitment, invites them to church. They have a friend who helps them understand not just what prayer do you pray, what decision do you make with your mind, but what are the next steps of following and obeying Jesus. And the truth is, if the church, all of us, would do a better job helping people understand what it means to follow, not just what it means to decide, our mass evangelism practices would be very different. Maybe we could believe the statistics that say that 80% of America are born-again believers. And so we have to help people understand what it means to follow Christ. Here's a couple definitions that I think are helpful. Uh, First, we go to the dictionary to see what Miriam Webster, never met her, but she's a smart lady. She says a lot of good things here, and this is what she says about discipleship. What is a disciple? A disciple is an inherent or a follower of a master, an intimate companion in some common endeavor, often learning and promoting a particular ideology. That's a good kind of classic definition. Someone who follows, someone who is intimate in some specific environment, who is a learner and promoter of a certain ideology. Alan Hirsch, a writer on discipleship, says this, Discipleship is becoming more and more like Jesus and letting him live his life more and more in me. You like that? doesn't mean if you complete a 12-week course, you're now a disciple. It means that you are always pursuing ways to be more and more like Jesus and letting Him live more and more through you. The one thing that I understand the longer that I walk with Christ is what, what a um, shoddy deal He got with me. I find out Uh, more about my sin the longer I walk with Him. 
Because I'm able to scrutinize myself differently than I did when I was 25, 15. And so this is the process of really never arriving, always trying to become more and more like Christ. And last, I love this, it's kind of the same, same idea, just a little simpler. Tony Morgan says, discipleship is all about taking our next steps towards Jesus. Now, you may have completed a discipleship course. You may have done, here's a favorite, experiencing God. And if you have not experienced God since you have done the workbook, you have failed miserably at something. It is all about taking your next steps toward Jesus. And this doesn't matter, this doesn't matter if you're a high schooler who recently recommitted your life to Christ at youth camp or whether you have been a member of this church for 75 years. There are next steps for you and your followership of Jesus. Now, here's the thing that's hard. Looking over this crowd, goodness. There are some very generic ways we could say, here's the next step for us. But the truth is, Jesus custom tailors his discipleship plan for you and your specific context. I don't know what your family life is like. I don't know what your employment is like. I don't know all of your family history, what it is that makes you who you are, but Jesus does. And he says there are some timeless principles for what it means to be a disciple. And so this morning, we're going to look uh, really foundationally at two passages, one in Mark chapter 3 and one in Matthew chapter 4 about Jesus' calling of his disciples. And we're going to see what this means for us as well. And so I'll begin in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. God's word says this. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and he summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, so that they would be with him. I think sometimes when we talk about discipleship, we automatically jump to an OCD, hyperactive definition of what it means to be a disciple. you got to get busy. you got to sign up. you got to get on a ministry team. you got to do something. One of the things that we have to realize here is that the first priority that Jesus had for his disciples was not that they do anything, but that they be with him. In our calling to be disciples, we are called to be with. Jesus. Now, why is that important? Why is that important? It's a whole lot easier to get caught up in religious activity and never in your heart be at one with your Lord. Religious activity looks great on the outside, but it can hide a heart of stone. And Jesus, as he came, came to reach his own, the Jewish people, and became very evident early on that this was not going to be a viable ministry. He came to his own. The Bible says his own received him not. And due to the hostility of the religious leaders, Jesus knew that he needed to recruit new workers. He needed to form his own people. He needed to begin a new organization. And as he started this, calling these 12 men to himself, he was calling disciples. It's interesting that he calls 12. Why 12? Well, there were 12 tribes of Israel. And he was calling 12 men from among the Jews. And he was starting 
a new Israel, a faithful Israel. And he knew that with the mission that he was going to entrust to these men, he needed to form who they were on the inside before he ever expected them to do anything on the outside. And so when we talk about this calling to be with Jesus, what does that mean? Well, it means this. Our call is to be like him through education and association. Fancy words. Our call is to be like him through education and association. What did the disciples learn when they were with him? All kinds of things. Could you imagine what it would be like to sit around the campfire with Jesus and just whatever the conversation is, be a fly on the wall? You think about the things that they learned from the Sermon on the Mount to how to handle conflict to learning how to live with ultimate priorities in mind. They had a front row seat to everything that Jesus taught and did. They learned. They were educated. And they just learned from rubbing shoulders with him. You remember the old saying, there's more that is caught than taught? Well, the disciples didn't have to choose, did they? They were taught and they caught a whole bunch. And so when we talk about our calling to be with Jesus, we're talking about being like him by learning from him and being associated with him. I love the story. My sister said this when she was um, coming to Christ as a child. She was uh, seven or eight. And sometimes the way that we talk about uh, coming to Christ scares kids, asking Jesus to come live inside our heart. Think about that for a second. That's terrifying. Uh, I don't know where we get that. It's nowhere in the Bible. I don't know where we get the phrase. I understand what it means. I grew up in church. But think about like a six or seven-year-old. So she asked this question. She said, how tall is Jesus? He was, he was Jewish and lived in the Middle East, you know, probably this. Why? Well, if he's coming to live inside my heart, isn't he going to stick out all over the place? I thought, isn't that a great way to think about it? When we are associated with Jesus, does he stick out all over the place? Do people know that you have been with Jesus because of the way you are? Not because of what you do, but just who you are. We talked a little bit at kids camp this week about what happens when you get shook up. What, what, comes, out of your, what comes out of your bottle when life shakes you? And when you have been with Jesus... Different stuff comes out than if you have not been with Jesus. Have you noticed that? You know, you you start slacking off in your prayer life. You start not spending time in the Word. You you start not fellowshipping with believers that are going to encourage you in the right direction. And you do that for a couple days, for a week or two. Do your reactions change a little bit? Do you perhaps get angry a little more quickly? Do you say things that you regret maybe a little more frequently? God has given us everything we need to be his disciples and to be good ones. He's given us his word. He's given us his people. He's given us his spirit. And we sometimes allow these means of grace that God has given us to go unused. They sit in the tool shed and the cobwebs form. And he says, learn from me, be with me, associate with me, and you will learn a lot. To be more specific, this is really what it means. When we talk about being like him, we are to be like him in our character, in our attitude, and in our motivation. 
Jesus wants to form us on the inside in a very deep and meaningful way. The word Christian means little Christ. And when people see us, they should see Jesus' character. They should see Jesus' attitude. They should see Jesus' kinds of motivations. Jesus wanted his disciples' reactions to be his reactions. You remember the story James and John, two of the early disciples. There was a city that did not want too keen about Jesus, the itinerant preacher, coming into town. You remember what James and John said? Right now, let's call down fire from heaven, which is why they were called the sons of thunder. They're, they're ready to kick tail. You disrespect my master? Well, we'll take care of you. And what's Jesus do? He says, no, that's not the right way to react. And isn't it strange that after spending three short years with Jesus, that John, one of the sons of thunder, becomes known as the beloved disciple. He writes the letter of 1 John, which is one of the most love-filled letters in the entire Bible. People will know we are disciples not by our imprecatory prayers for God to smite them, but how? How we love one another. John learned his lesson. He understood what it meant to be a disciple. That being with Jesus was a call to be like him in every respect. In his character, in his attitude, in his motivation. You see, the truth is Jesus doesn't just want us to to be with him. He wants us to do something. He wants every Christian to be a part of the mission of changing the entire world for him. And the only way he can do that is if who they are... And what they do lines up. You know, the number one reason when I talk to people about going to church, you know the number one reason they don't come to church? All y'all hypocrites. Anybody ever heard that before? So my response is, well, listen, if a hypocrite is keeping you from church, which you know you need to do, where does that put you on the scale? Church? Hypocrite? You? What? We need to admit where we have failed in this regard. We need to admit where our character, our attitude, our motivation, our inside has been ugly. Because it's only when we admit that it's messed up that Jesus can come in and give the cure. He can come in and fix it. But repentance is required before Jesus' proactive reconstruction can happen. One of the things that I think is great about this is that this call, this call to be with Jesus, is for all kinds of people, anyone who is willing to follow Christ. Look at verses 16 through 19. We get our first um, introduction to who these 12 are that Jesus is called to be with him. And he appointed the 12th, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boagernes, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. There's a couple interesting things to note about the disciples. They are only listed like this in four places in the entire New Testament. Uh, You see it here, you see it in Mark, you see it in Luke, and you see it in the book of Acts. Um, We've got a little chart here that we're going to throw up here on the screen for you that's just Bible teachers, you'll love this. Eat your heart out. It's lots of information. Um, They are always named in three groups of four the same way. Simon Peter is always at the very front of the list. Judas Iscariot is always at the very bottom of the list. 
except for in the book of Acts where Judas isn't mentioned at all because he's already killed himself. They're always mentioned in these groups of four the same way all the time, except within their groupings of four, they, they might be named differently. And so um, hopefully you can see that up there because I cannot read it off the back of the, the wall there. But you see several different things that are happening. You see two sets of brothers that are called to follow Christ. You see Andrew and Peter. You see James and John. And it's interesting, James, one of the brothers, is the very first disciple to die as a martyr. And John, his brother, is the very last one left alive on the earth, exiled on the Isle of Patmos, writing the book of Revelation. You see, God's call, while it may um, have the same principles, doesn't always flesh out the same way for every person. For James, it was an early death testifying to the greatness of God. For John, it was a ripe old age writing and telling of the Lord that he loved. Within this group of people, you have Peter who was the bold optimist. Let's do it, Lord! And stuck his foot in his mouth more than once. But on the other end of the spectrum, you also had Thomas the pessimist. That when a resurrected Christ is standing in front of him, he's not quite so sure what he's seeing. Not only do you have an optimist and a pessimist, you have Simon the zealot. Simon was um, probably the equivalent of a first century Jewish terrorist who hated the Romans. He was a zealot in the sense that he was actively preparing ways to sabotage the Roman rule over the Jews. This was one of Jesus' disciples, a radical, a, a political firebrand. And who else was he joined to in this merry band of 12? Matthew, the tax collector, who served the man, who collected taxes for the Roman government. If there were two people that would never associate together, it would be Simon the Zealot and Matthew, the tax collector. Yet in God's kingdom, people who have nothing else in common become brothers. They become family. John, Peter, Matthew... All contribute to the books of the New Testament. They are well known as disciples because of their writings. And then you have the disciple known as James the Lesser, appropriately named. We don't know anything about him. Nothing from the scripture tells us anything. So you have some disciples that go on to be very prominent. And you have others that remain obscure. And that's okay. That's the ministry to which God has called them. And so we see that God calls all kinds of people to be with him and to reflect his character as they relate to one another. But secondly, in our call to be disciples, we are also sent out for Jesus. Let's continue in verses uh, 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 14, the second half through 15. It says, And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. It's very clear. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, it says this, Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you, what? Fishers of men. You see, Jesus has a mission for us. He has a job. He has things he wants us to do. At some point, he's got to take these group of men who have been receivers, and he has to turn them into givers. 
He has to mature them to a point where the people who came to gather together can be sent out with His authority and His power to do what Jesus has bidden them to do. And if all we ever do as disciples is is sit in our Bible studies, come to our worship services, and we never get out and do ministry, we become uh, what a friend of mine has referred to as a Dead Sea Christian. You know why the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea? Because it's dead. Nothing can live in it. It's so, um, the, the salt is so concentrated that uh, not only do you float real well, you get very buoyant, but it's impossible to sustain life. And here's the thing that makes the Dead Sea the Dead Sea, is the Jordan River drains southward into the Dead Sea, and it has no output. So everything that comes down the Jordan stays in the Dead Sea. And in the same way, if you're a Christian that has lots of input, Bible study, prayer meeting, personal devotions, another Bible study, another worship service, coming to this church, going to that church, going to another church, and you have no output for actually doing what Jesus has commanded you to do, you'll be a Dead Sea Christian. Tons of input, no output. And it will kill not only your spiritual life, but you'll be of no help to the people that God brings along your pathway. Because you're not a giver. You're a receiver. And so while we may not all be called to a demon expulsing or healing ministry, the purpose of these ministries that the Lord had given to His apostles was to testify to the gospel. These are things that we can do. Jesus' miracles, when He did them, he, he was not, uh, Jesus was not a roving gypsy putting on a carnival freak show. Hey, watch what I can do to these bread and these fish. They were God-empowered um, Miracles, interruptions of the natural order that functioned as attention-getting devices so that once Jesus had their attention, what could he do? Preach to them. Preach to them. The miracles were not standalone things. Now granted, listen, if you were ill and Jesus came to town and healed you, you're grateful. But you're also going to listen to what that man has to say when he gets done doing what he does when he comes to your house. They were attention-getting devices that gathered a crowd that testified to the power of the message that he preached. Listen, Jesus literally had people eating out of his hands. And as soon as he had their attention, he said, all right, guys, listen up. Uh, I got a little sermon for you. You have to imagine the disciples going, what? No, no, no sermon. Do another miracle. You know, you've got their attention. They're listening. And Jesus used his miracles as occasions to gather a crowd for his preaching. So when we talk about being sent out, um, we're dealing with this issue that we are to be like him, not just on the inside, but on the outside, in our words and our deeds. We're to testify to the gospel, and we're we're to sacrifice for the gospel. And the point is this, if you can memorize 1,000 Bible verses, but not actively help an immature believer or a non-Christian, something is really seriously wrong with your spirituality. We have to testify about Him in our words and our deeds. And it's not just enough to be like Jesus on the inside. We must be His apostles, His ambassadors, His emissaries, His sent ones to a lost world. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with memorizing a thousand verses of Scripture. Just don't hoard them to yourself. Share them with someone. 
Memorize scripture so that you're a better apostle. You're a better sent out one. You're a better doer for Jesus. We see something here that I think is lost on our culture. And it's our our third and final point. It's that when Jesus calls, he, he expects immediate obedience. That's not a good word. We, we don't like the word obedience. But when, when Jesus calls, he expects immediate obedience. He, he doesn't simply expect for someone to walk an aisle, shake a hand, and be done for the rest of their life. That's the first, that's the first inch of the yardstick. And when we come to uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, we see something that I think is very interesting. It says this, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. We see a couple things here, two two specific points underneath this that I think are helpful. And the first is this, that Jesus' call is sensitive. Do you notice how Jesus called James, James, uh, John, Peter, and Andrew? What were they doing when Jesus happened to be strolling by? They were fishing. And Jesus' call to them was what? Follow me and I will not change your career, I'll just change what you're fishing for. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Sometimes we have developed this really strange view that if you're going to serve God, you have to like move away, go to seminary, get a Bible education, and then maybe somewhere somewhere down the road a church will hire you and then you, know, you can serve God. God's call to be a disciple is sensitive enough that he can use you in whatever place he has placed you. If you're a fisherman, he'll take that and he'll use that. If you work for a factory, well, guess who put you in that factory in the first place? He did. You work for the post office, you work for the school board, guess what? You have the opportunity to be his ambassador in that environment. You own your own company. Own it for the glory of God. Own it for the good of your employees, not just to provide a wage and a roof over their head, but to be the instrument by which they might hear the gospel. Jesus didn't ask them to change their career. He just rerouted something that they already did and said, you already know a little bit about fishing. Let me teach you how to fish for men. He didn't say, hey, listen, drop your nets and I'm going to make you rocket scientists. What are you talking about, Jesus? He says, no, I know you, and let me tell you how we're going to work this out. He understood their vocation, their vocation, and he called them to use skills that they already had for a higher purpose. Listen, if God could do this with the disciples, what could he do with 300 people here this morning? If the 300 people here this morning understood that God could use your vocation and your skills for his higher purpose, for his kingdom... You see, God is calling you right now. And he's waiting to see if you will answer. 
I'm sorry, Scott. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Listen, it's true. One of the things that is always a difficult thing is, um, I'll speak off the record here briefly, is sometimes when, sometimes when you're a pastor, everyone expects you to do their witnessing for them. Hey, I got a friend. Hey, I got a cousin. Hey, I got an uncle. Hey, I got a, I got a, I got a, I got enough I got us. I would rather be the kind of pastor that helps Christians know what to do in their sphere of influence. Because the truth of the matter is, you know, you know who I'm going to reach predominantly? I'm going to reach my neighbors. I'm going to reach parents that um, we go to school with. I'm going I'm to reach my sphere of influence. And my sphere of influence vocationally is here at this church. So I'm going to reach people that walk through the door. Now, I hope my reach extends beyond that. Here's the thing. If you're willing to be equipped to be a disciple, then the reach of our church is not just who comes to our services. It's wherever we go. Wherever those little Northside stickers on the back of your car show up, we have an ambassador from our church there ready to live out and share the gospel with everyone. And I just ask you, which, which kind of church is going, to, is going to honor God as Lord better? A church that only reaches people that walk in the doors or a church where its members are equipped to take the gospel with them wherever they go. And so Jesus is sensitive. He's not saying, stop, stop whatever you're doing and go get a new job. He's just saying, as you go, as you do what you do, take it with you. But the second thing is that Jesus' call is progressive. We talked about this when we talked about the different definitions of discipleship. And the one that I liked is that discipleship is learning what your next step is with Jesus. I think, I think we think, based upon this passage, Matthew 4, that Jesus had no idea who these men were, and you know, he just kind of comes strolling along the lakeshore and goes, hey, you, you two, follow me. Oh, you two, you two, follow me. And it, it just, boom, it happens. Truth is, I don't think that that's the way it happened at all. I think Jesus' call on their life was progressive. And while there were definitely implications that affected these disciples' businesses, their livelihood, and their family, it was not an all-or-nothing, one-shot, or you're done deal. You see, there's multiple passages that talk about Jesus calling the disciples. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. I'm just going to give you a quick run-through. John chapter 1 is John the Baptist baptizing in the wilderness. You remember he says, there's one coming after me. I'm not, even, I'm not even holy enough to take the shoes off his feet. And it says that John had disciples that when Jesus was coming to John to be baptized, John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one of whom I was speaking. The one who comes after me, I'm unworthy to even untie his sandals. Andrew, was it Andrew and Peter, James and John, one of the brothers, was one of John the Baptist's disciples. And at that point it says that they followed Jesus and they spent the night with him. Okay? Point number one in our chronology of the calling to be disciples. There were people who responded immediately, but it was a temporary retreat. They got to go to disciples camp. You know, we just got back from kids camp. They went on a retreat with Jesus. And then, you know what? The bus got home. They were done. They went back to do what? Fishing. And then, guess what? Jesus shows up at their workplace. And he says, hey, you guys have a boat. Um, In Luke chapter 5, that's Luke's retelling of the 
uh, one of Jesus' sermons. The crowd comes in and they press, and Jesus is running out of shore space. So he says, hey guys, can I borrow one of your boats? You know, we can get people right, we can get them up, in, you know, knee high in the water, and we'll back out a little bit. And they get done, and Jesus preaches from the boat. And when he gets done preaching, he says, all right, guys, here's what I want you to do. I want you to throw your nets out, and I want you to go fishing. And they go, um, God, Jesus, we've been fishing all night, and we haven't caught anything. We don't think we want to do this, but because you've told us to, we will. And you know what happens? They throw their net out, and it is so full, two things happen. Their nets are about to burst, and they have to call another boat. Now, we know Andrew and Peter are brothers, and they're in the fishing business, and we know James and John are in the fishing business. So if Jesus is on the lake with Andrew and Peter, and they have to call another boat, hmm, wonder who that other boat could have belonged to. Could it have been James and John? I don't know, but I think there's a, there's a pretty powerful clue for us when we um, look at Matthew chapter 5. So John chapter 1, John the Baptist testifies to Christ. The disciples follow Jesus on a little mini retreat, and then they go back to their work. Later, Jesus shows up at work in Luke chapter 5, performs this miracle, this net-busting miracle. And then Matthew chapter 5, it says that Jesus calls Andrew and Peter. In verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father doing what? Mending their nets. Why do you think they're mending their nets? Could it be that the day before, they had had a front row seat to not only Jesus' proclamation, but this miraculous catch that ripped their nets to shreds. And when Jesus now says, follow me, he's not talking about going on, on a weekend retreat. He's talking about signing up to be one of his sent out ones, to live for him, to have his authority to proclaim. And at this point, listen, they needed that little retreat. And then they needed some time to think about it. And then when Jesus came and he said, it's time, lay down your nets, leave your dad and come. Jesus is demonstrating that his call is progressive. And friend, here's why this is so important. So many people, when they share their testimony, share a history lesson. Tell me, tell, tell me a little bit about your, your walk with Jesus. Well, 35 years ago, if it ended 35 years ago, is there anything compelling about your testimony to draw someone to Christ? I, I don't want to know just how it began I want to know how it continues. We sing the song that every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. But yet when we talk about our testimony, we always talk about something that happened 35 years ago as if nothing else has changed as we followed Christ. God's call is progressive. And yes, at one point in time, God miraculously changed your destiny by saving you. But I don't believe that any of us believe that he was done working on us at that point. So what is the next step for you? If discipleship is progressive, maybe you've passed discipleship kindergarten. Maybe you have graduated from discipleship fifth grade. 
maybe you are even, um, you've, you've passed your discipleship SAT and you're looking at college and graduate school. The question is, what is the next step for you? And there's just a couple truths and then we'll close. The, the Bible says that people who follow Christ, <clears throat> people who follow Christ reproduce themselves. Okay? Dogs, <clears throat> dogs have puppies. Cats have kittens. Turtles have baby turtles. Frogs have tadpoles. What do Christians have? Baby Christians. We're supposed to reproduce ourselves. God set a principle in motion when he created the world that everything would reproduce after its kind. So non-believers produce what? Non-believers. Christians produce Christians. And specifically, God says that Christians, disciples, synonymous, only disciples can make disciples. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be like, you got to have like your PhD in discipleology to be able to like make a new disciple. The truth is when it comes to discipleship, you only have to be one step ahead of the person that you're discipling. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I know, I know we have people here that have a deep and vibrant prayer life. You know what else I know? We got people here that the only time they pray is when they come to church on Sunday. If you have a deep and meaningful prayer life, do you think I could set up a coffee appointment for you and you and have you meet in the middle and that this person could help this person out? That's discipleship. We have some people that have a a very meaningful time in the Word. We have some people that the only time they read the Bible is when they come to church. If you have something going right for you in your Christian walk, by God's grace, you are equipped to help someone who's not as far along the path as you are. Only disciples can make disciples. Secondly, disciples are rarely made in rows. Disciples are rarely made in rows. Discipleship is not simply information transfer. If that was the case, we'd give you a little flash drive with all the information that you need, and we'd plug it into your brain, and man, you'd be perfect. Discipleship is about life transformation. And so... Completing a course, reading a book, going through a curriculum, it doesn't make you a disciple. What you do with that information will make you a disciple, but simply completing a course doesn't do it. Third, discipleship takes time, but it is the most direct fulfillment of the Great Commission. You remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28? Go, therefore, and make aisle walkers. Go, therefore, and make decision makers. Go therefore and make pew sitters. Go therefore and make apathetic, do nothing followers of me. No, go therefore and make disciples. Go and make disciples. And it takes time. How do you teach someone everything that they need to know in five simple steps? You don't do it. I've had the privilege of walking with Christ for 32 years now. And the road ahead of me is long still. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot that I have learned, but there's a lot still to come. And discipleship is comprehensive. It includes our beliefs, our behaviors, and our attitudes. There's a little chart here. When we talk about our beliefs, our behaviors, and our attitudes, 
We could call it our, our head, our hands, and our heart. And if our discipleship is only about orthodoxy, it's only about what we believe, well, the truth is there were two groups of people, neither of which we want to emulate, that had the head stuff right. Man, the Pharisees knew their doctrine, and so did Judas Iscariot. But their hearts weren't right, and they didn't live out what they believed. If our discipleship is just about being busy and doing stuff with our hands, doing stuff for Jesus, well, so was the rich young ruler. Lord, all these things I have done since my youth. Tell me what I lack so that I can do it, so that I can achieve salvation for myself. The truth is, discipleship includes all. What we believe, what we do, and what our heart motivations are. So listen, discipleship is a very serious challenge. It was a serious challenge for the men that Jesus originally called. And friends, 2,000 years hasn't watered down the call at all. This is what God calls us to to, to do. to, To know Him. To love Him. To work for Him. How are we going to do this? Serve, in a recent survey of one, of one of the most popular churches in America that became a role model for hundreds, for thousands of other churches, recently did a study called Reveal, in which they essentially critiqued themselves and their discipleship strategy. And overwhelmingly, they said, we're not doing it. And this is a church that's perhaps one of the best-known churches in our country for discipleship. And they said that they got, if they graded themselves on a 100-point scale, they would have gotten a 13%. Now, thankfully, we don't give Fs anymore because that would hurt somebody's self-esteem. But that's an F, a 13%. How do we do it? How do we improve our discipleship ministry? Where do we go from here? You've heard the challenge. Where's the opportunity? I don't know everything that, that, that we can do right now to wave a magic wand and fix things, but I do know one opportunity that I really want to make you aware of. And this is something that I'm, I'm excited about, and I hope that you will be excited about this too. Um, for the last 10 months, really, almost every week, if not every other week, I have had a man or a woman sit in my office and say, I, I need a relationship with another guy that's going to help me. That's going to push me along. I need a relationship with, with a woman, uh, another wife, another mother that can help me. I, I just need, I need women around me to help me with womenly callings. I need men around me to help me with manly callings. Well, on August 14th <clears throat> at 6 p.m., I know uh, many of you are familiar with the name David Platt. Um, David has, done, has uh, written the book Radical that I know many of you have, um, have read. He's got a new book out on discipleship called Follow Me. This is a Wednesday night at 6 p.m. We have signed up for a license to simulcast a live event on discipleship with David Platt. We'll be joining thousands of other churches around the United States, literally around the world. And our hope out of this is that uh, while we will continue, definitely continue our prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, that once we conclude our prayer meeting portion of our service, that we will move into a men's-based Bible study and a women's-based Bible study. That will be a Bible study, but there will also be a component where we are really prayerfully hopeful that we'll have men that will be up for the challenge of taking uh, a, a man who is struggling in their Christian walk and encourage them. That we will have women 
that will be willing to do life with other women. Because the truth is, if the church doesn't program it, it just doesn't happen sometimes. I have had, I'll just wager, 50 people come up and talk about how much this is a lack in their life. And they have the church directory. They have everybody's phone numbers. They could make the phone call and say, hey, can we go grab a cup of coffee? And it's not happening. We have to find a way to connect the dots for people to help them get more serious about what it means to follow Christ. And this morning, as you hear this message, for whatever reason, you're not proud of how you're following. This is the best place to make it right. This is the safest place to make it right. Now, I know uh, walking an aisle in front of, you know, 600 eyeballs maybe isn't the easiest thing. But I can promise you, if you have the humility to admit where you have not followed, you will receive encouragement tenfold whatever embarrassment you will find. Jesus says very clearly, we have to be willing to stand for him. Because he, he was willing to die for us. And so this morning, if you are not following in the way that you would really like to in your heart, the invitation that we have here is for you. It's a chance for you to come and pray. It's a chance for you to come and speak with me or one of our staff and just say, I don't know where exactly I got off the path, but I have gotten off, and I would like to get back on. It would be our privilege to speak with you about that. One of the things that Jesus wants for his people who are his disciples is for them to affiliate together, for them to be a part of the family. And, and you, you don't just kind of common law family. You know if you're in the family or not. And so for some of you, it may be a call to join our church, to say, I'm not just going to show up on Sunday. I'm going to say, I'm committed. I want to be a part. For some of you, there are people here this morning that don't know Christ. You know the church. You know religious activity. But you've never been with Jesus. Don't leave here, without, don't leave here with those questions. Today, you can trust Christ. And today, you can get on the path to follow him. Pray with me, please. Lord, we ask your spirit to move here as we sing this song and as we have our time of uh, public invitation. Lord, I, I, I pray for that man or that woman, that teenager who may, even at this moment, may be standing there and just going, wow, this message spoke to my heart. This message dealt with things that I am dealing with. And Lord, if your spirit is providing that, that conviction, that compulsion, um, help, help them not to stifle that. Help them to come. Lord, we need to be the kind of church that builds disciples because disciples, your disciples, changed the world and there were just 12 of them. Lord, if we could get this discipleship thing down as a church, what kind of impact would we make on our community, on our city, on our nation? So Lord, I pray that you help us to be humble, that you help us to be encouraging. Lord, that you create within us a passion to be your disciples. We pray these things in Jesus' name.